we are having the opportunity to gather this morning for worship and to, to hear a word from heaven. It really is what this session is about. So we're going to open the scriptures. That is the way to hear a word from heaven. If you turn in your Bibles with me, if you have them, uh, to John chapter 17. I want to read for us one of the most potent passages that I know of. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Will you glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you? For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, will you glorify, my, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began? I want to suggest this morning that we have a profound need for this passage of Scripture. And if you know John chapter 17, that might surprise you a little bit. These first five verses are often treated as sort of something you sort of quickly move through to get to the other two sections of this chapter. This is a chapter-long prayer on the part of the Lord Jesus. And in this first section, as we've just heard, Jesus prays for himself. In the second section, he prays for his disciples gathered there in that room. And we might say, well, why wouldn't we turn there? Surely as he's praying for them, the disciples, that have, would have more pertinence for us. In fact, even more so with that third section, because in that section of this prayer, he prays for all those who will believe through their word, through the word of those gathered there in the upper room, his disciples. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that means you. One way or another, it's the word of those men, what they wrote, what they taught, passed down through the generations of the church, until finally you heard that word, and you turned to Christ and trusted him. In that third section of this prayer, Jesus is praying for you almost by name. You say, surely that would be the most pertinent for us of all. Well, you'd be right on both counts. Uh, second and third sections are profoundly pertinent to us. But what I'm suggesting is what we need most of all is this first section where Jesus prays for himself. Now, why do I say that? Well, we come to the subject of why we have gathered this morning for this session. You and I live in a changed environment. Uh, I've used the title for this message this morning, No Longer the Home Team. And you understand that image, don't you? When you're the home team, you play and the people in the stands are applauding everything you do. When you're no longer the home team, when you're playing away, the people in the stands are not your fans. And so you do not get applauded. In fact, you may get booed when you are no longer the home team. That's what has changed in our environment, in our American culture today. We are no longer the home team. Uh, people like us, Christians, 
People who believe in the Bible, people who have trusted Christ and are seeking to follow him, used to be the home team. I, I don't mean by that that this was ever a Christian nation. I don't believe that for a minute, not by any biblical standards of the term Christian. But there is no question that for most of the history of this country, the Bible played a crucial role, and those underlying Judeo-Christian values permeated the culture. It was built upon those values so that Christians, living as Christians, were comfortable. It was an environment in which we fit, and even people who were not themselves Christians looked at, looked at and valued the churches and what churches do and Christians. That's no longer true. The ground has shifted on us and is continuing to shift and is accelerating. Very complex set of developments. This is a book uh, actually was recommended by your own staff. I read it, The Great Evangelical Recession. In this book, John Dickerson lays out a series of trends and he summarizes some of those trends this way. He says, the broader host culture of the United States is changing faster than most of us realize. Second point, the direction of that change includes anti-Christian responses. Third point, the rate of the cultural change in this direction will further accelerate as the two older generations in America disappear. And fourth, these changes will reach a point at which they directly affect church as we know it and our lives as individual Christians. I think we're already there and beyond. Churches are already being affected by these changes. Individual Christians and Christian organizations are already being changed and being affected, being challenged by what's taking place in our culture. If we had the time I would walk us through a series of anecdotes that are taking place right now as we speak in American culture. There is a second book that I've been reading recently, too, that explains how this has come about. How have we moved from a society, a culture that was congenial to Christianity and Christians living as Christians and has become increasingly hostile to Christianity and Christians living as Christians. How has that happened? Here's a second book, The Rise and Decline of American Religious Freedom. This first book was written by Christians, basically for Christians. This book was not. This is book written by a secular academic published by Harvard University Press. This is not an evangelical publisher, as you may guess. There's not special pleading going on here for Christians. This is simply a dispassionate academic treatment of how this has taken place. And what he does is walk us through from the founding of the nation, the beginning of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the first right, number one in the Bill of Rights, religious freedom. He's tracing all the way through how the United States has handled this. And he explains how it is that up until about the middle of the 20th century, this environment in America was very congenial to Christians trying to live as Christians. But as of about the middle of the 20th century, there were a series of Supreme Court decisions that changed everything. 
There had always been two sort of readings of the Constitution right from the beginning, Washington, John Adams, ultimately Lincoln on one side, the providentialist, and the other side, the secularist, more like Thomas Jefferson or James Madison. And right from the beginning, these two had been there, and the Supreme Court viewed these two as sort of both possibilities and legitimate. And neither was set as doctrinaire orthodoxy in the U.S. And what took place in the middle of the 20th century, starting in 1947, a decision and a series after that, was that the secularist reading was set as the orthodox reading of the Constitution, the providentialist, that which made room for uh, Christian convictions, references to God, was ruled out of bounds. That's now heresy. In the public setting, government, so on. Everything changes in the middle of the 20th century so that people my age and younger have lived in America constantly and changed. That has only accelerated now. We are more and more a secular nation. Prior to the middle of the 20th century, this was not a secular nation in the sense that it's thought to be now. Most people have no sense of the historical change. Again, this is not a Christian writing this. This is simply an academic treatment that's laying out and fully documented these changes and how the Constitution is read. And you and I are experiencing the differences now, and it's only accelerating. I don't think it's going back. We've passed the tipping point. It seems to be speeding up now. And we're going to see more and more of this. You're going to see it. Your children will see it. Your grandchildren will see it further and further. And the question it raises is, how on earth do we as Christians live in the midst of this changed environment? We really don't have much practice with that sort of thing. All over the world, all through church history, but especially today, do you realize Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world today? As we speak, there are countless Christians who are suffering, suffering grievously because of their identification with the person of Jesus Christ. We've been reading just this past month about the Christians in Mosul in northern Iraq who because of the takeover of ISIL, they are being driven out. They're being told lived there for generations, thousands of years, literally some of these, these families, as Christians. And they've been told, you either convert or you give up everything you have and leave your home, your money, your jewelry, everything. It's gone, you're gone, or you die. As we speak, that's, that's all over the Mid Middle East, Northern Africa, other places in the world. Korea, China, Christians suffering for being Christians. You and I don't have any tales to tell that compare to that. The problem is we are not used to what's happening. We're used to being comfortable in our society. How do we learn to live out of step? You realize most Christians at most times in most places down through church history have lived out of step with their cultural moment, their time and place. They've, they know how to live in an environment that is not comfortable for him. It's only American Christians that somehow think, wait a second, this is no longer comfortable. Let's, we got to take America back. We are not going to take America back. We never had it in the first place. That's not what we should be doing. We have no business sort of crawling up in a corner and wringing our hands, oh dear, oh dear. None of that. You have no business becoming combative. We need to be gracious and winsome. But we do need to know how to live in this increasingly new environment for us as Christians in America. 
And that's what I have for you this morning. There are a number of places we could turn in the Bible to get help with this issue. I think of 1 Peter that was written to exiles and sojourners in culture, being taught how to live and handle suffering for doing what's right. Great counsel. We could turn to Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of fame of the faithful, and see there are not only Christians who live successfully, but Christians who live faithfully and paid a dear price for it. Sawn in two, attacked by wild animals, living in caves, down through church history, the great martyrs. We could learn a lot. There are lots of places we could learn how to live when we are out of step with our own time and place. But what I'm suggesting is what we need more than anything else this morning, where it all starts, is in this passage we have before us this morning. Let me show you what I mean. What we have in this passage in John chapter 17 is a wonderful account of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's in the upper room, of course. He's just moments from going across the Kidron Valley and up into the Garden of Gethsemane where he will spend the night in prayer and then he'll be taken into captivity and put through those phony trials, ultimately hung on that Roman cross. These are his final words, John chapter 17, before uh, leaving for his ordeal. This is a, a rare uh, passage of Scripture for us. You know, Jesus was a master prayer and was viewed as such by his disciples, but very seldom do we have a chance to listen in. We see him praying all the time through the Gospels, but we just get little snippets of the prayer. Here, for the first time, we get an entire chapter where we can listen in as the second person of the Godhead speaks to the Father. This is a very rare passage. In fact, this is really the Lord's Prayer. That other one we call the Lord's Prayer is not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus never called it that. The Bible doesn't call it that. We call it that, but it's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. The disciples said, Jesus, show us how to pray. He said, okay, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, he gives them this model prayer. And you listen to that prayer, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we... That's not a prayer for Jesus to pray, that's for you and me. This is the ultimate prayer of the Lord. Only he could pray this prayer. Now, Father, I have completed everything you sent me to do. I couldn't pray that, could you? This is uniquely the Lord's prayer. It's one that ought to be precious to us, and we should know it by heart. Listen to what the Lord prays when he comes to pray for himself. Jesus says, Father, the time has come. What time is that? That's the time of his crucifixion, obviously, the great crescendo of the entire purpose of his coming into the world, the courts of heaven, taking upon himself flesh, becoming a human to live and then ultimately to die for us. And he's just literally hours away from that ordeal. Five times in the Gospel of John, we're told his hour had not yet come. His mother at the wedding feast of Cana said, look, just reveal yourself. He said, woman, my hour has not yet come. His brother said, look, just go up to Jerusalem. Let people see who you are. You don't get it. My hour has not yet come. Three times we're told that the crowd wanted to take him and do away with him, but they were prevented from doing so. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now, for the first time, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. And in the face of that hour, what is it that Jesus prays for? 
This is his one and his only request. Father, will you glorify your son that your son may glorify you? His one request. He repeats it a second time down in verse 5. And now, Father, will you glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began? It's the same request. He says it twice, but it's one request. Father, will you give me back the glory I had with you before the world began? His one, his only, his massive request. I'm always struck by how that stands out from our prayers. I don't know about you, but when we get together for prayer, what do we often do? We get our prayer requests together and sort of pray through our laundry list of prayer requests for someone who's lost their health or someone who needs a job or someone whose family who's lost a loved one or something. We pray for them one after the other. There is no laundry list here. There is only this massive prayer of the Lord Jesus. And, and I don't want to suggest that somehow our laundry lists are wrong or out of place. That's not true at all. In fact, if you go to that disciples' prayer, how Jesus instructs us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The Lord cares about our daily needs. He wants us to pray for those things. There's nothing wrong with our laundry lists. But notice that by the time we make that prayer, the little prayer, we have already prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. We've prayed the big prayer before we ever get to our little prayers. And I would suggest as a model, that's a great model, that we be sure that we don't just pray the laundry list, but we're praying the big prayers. For Jesus, there was only the big prayer, Father, will you give me back the glory I had with you before the world began? By what right did Jesus have to make that prayer request to the Father? He gives us the warrant for that request when he says, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you've given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know me. And I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you sent me to do. Now, will you give me back the glory I had with you before the world began? That's the warrant. He had been sent with a task. And now he had completed that task to the uttermost. And it's on the basis of that that the Son asked the Father to give him back his glory. Do you understand what Jesus is praying for here? What he's praying for is a reversal of what took place in the Incarnation. He's not praying for a reversal of the Incarnation itself where, the, where God becomes a man. The God-man will be the God-man throughout all eternity. He's asking for a reversal of the emptying or the veiling that took place when he came into the world. That wonderful passage over in Philippians chapter 2, we have this hymn uh, about Jesus, who being in very nature God, and he did not e uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to. No, I'm not going to let go of this. Instead, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a, a mere man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see the journey that he took from the courts of heaven and all of his glory and equality with God, 
He received an assignment to come into the world. And he didn't hold on to that glory. He let it go. And he came into the world and took upon himself just ordinary human flesh. He was willing to allow the people he came to save to take his life on a Roman cross. See, the journey was all down. 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 Down, even to the cross. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time, isn't it? The coming into the world, the incarnation, which included the veiling. Hark the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. That's what we're doing there at Christmas time. We're looking at this one who all the glories of heaven were veiled now and he's just this little baby looking just like us. In fact, the, the, the Christmas cards often get that wrong, don't they? They show this little baby laying there in the manger and the animals gathered around. And here's this little baby laying there and there's a beam of light coming down. There's a little halo over his head. and There was no beam of light. There was no halo. If you had been there to look at that baby, he looked like every other baby. Just like you. Just like me. All of his glory. All of his majesty. Utterly veiled. He had given it up in order to come into the world for our salvation. And now having fulfilled everything the Father had sent him to do, he's able to speak of the cross. It's so close that he can speak of it as a completed thing. I've completed everything you have sent me to do. Now, Father, will you validate it? Will you certify it as sufficient by taking me out of the grave and taking me back to heaven and giving me back the full panoply of my glory? Will you give me back the glory I had with you before the world began? That is his one, his only request. You say, okay, I, I, I see that. I, I can understand that's what he's praying for, but I don't get it. Why do you say that's so important? Well, for this reason, because the Father was able to say yes to that prayer. He had, in fact, accomplished everything the Father had sent him to do. And so the Father was able to give him back the glory he had before the world began. I read a moment ago from that Philippians 2 passage. Let me look at it again. Who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness as a mere man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what is the very next word? Therefore, because he did that, and he did it to the uttermost. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember his prayer, Father? Will you glorify yourself by re-glorifying me? It's exactly the Apostle Paul says what happened. He finished everything the Father had sent him to do. And so the Father took him back into the courts of heaven and gave him back the full panoply of his glory and majesty. The Father was able to say yes 
to the son's prayer. You say, okay, I see that. I still don't get it. Why why do you say that's so important? Well, here's why. Because that means the only Jesus you know, the only Jesus you ever talk to, the Jesus you serve is the Jesus after this prayer, not the Jesus before this prayer. I'm not spouting heresy here. There aren't two different Jesus. It's the same Jesus either way. But what I am suggesting is that this prayer represents a profound theological watershed. And you and I live and operate on the other side of that watershed. I'm not sure a lot of us get that. I think a lot of Christians miss this. A generation ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a little book called Your God is Too Small. And it was a book basically talking to Christians that they're teaching us that for many of us, our, our, our vision, a big vision of God was just too small, too truncated, too narrowed down. We need a full biblical understanding of who God is. I want to suggest somebody needs to write the book, Your Jesus is Too Small. Because I think for many of us, our Jesus is way too small. We do not understand the full biblical understanding of who Jesus is. We've got a much reduced little Jesus. I'll show you what I mean. Let me ask you a question. When, when you think of Jesus, when you picture Jesus to the extent you ever do, what does he look like? Well, if you're like the rest of us, he looks like all those paintings and drawings and stuff you've seen down through the centuries. Someone has said that Walter Salman Painting of the praying Jesus is the most duplicated work of art in the history of art. I don't know. Maybe so. All I know is there are countless pictures, Sunday school literatures, and it's, it's the same person, a very longish hair and wearing a beard and um, wearing peasant clothes and sandals, maybe with children gathered around or sitting in a boat or whatever the, the picture is. That's the picture we have of Jesus. You realize every single one of those paintings, every drawing, every single one is completely the figment of the imagination of the artist because the artist has no idea what Jesus looked like. That's strange. Here are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them targeted on the person of Jesus, telling us everything we need to know about him, and not one of them give us the slightest description of what Jesus himself looked like. Oh, we know he wore a beard. They plucked it out at the crucifixion. He wore sandals. John says, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. I'm talking about the man himself. What did he look like? Was Jesus tall or was he short? What do you think? Was Jesus a big barrel-chested sort of burly guy? Or was he thin and wiry? What do you think? Did Jesus have light skin or dark skin? What do you think? You don't know, do you? And neither do I. And neither does anybody else. There was not even in the early church a tradition of what Jesus looked like. There were for some of the apostles. You can read in the second century uh, work called the Acts of Thecla, a very clear and fairly detailed description of what the apostle Paul looked like that probably represents a pretty accurate tradition. There was no such tradition about Jesus. They begin to get the idea that maybe the Father does not want us to view Jesus that way. 
I said there's no description of Jesus anywhere in the Gospels. But that's not the same thing as saying there's no description anywhere of what Jesus looks like. You want to know what Jesus looks like? If you're going to picture him anyway, maybe we ought to picture him this way. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And I turned around to see the voice which was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword in his face. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The one writing this was John. Remember, John was Jesus' best friend all during his public ministry. John was the one in that upper room who leaned back on the bosom of Jesus. He knew Jesus intimately. And yet when John's best friend turned and saw that Jesus, after this prayer, the majestic, glorified Christ of heaven, walking among the lampstands, he was so overwhelmed by his glory and his majesty that he fell at his feet as though dead. And Jesus, his friend, had to reach out and touch and say, John, it's okay. It's me. Do you get that? Is that your vision of who Jesus is? There was a fellow going around Los Angeles uh, claiming that Jesus appeared to him on a regular basis. He was with John MacArthur one time telling John that Jesus had appeared to him that morning while he was shaving. John MacArthur said, well, what did you do? And he said, well, I kept on shaving. And John MacArthur said, then that wasn't Jesus. And John is right. You do not come face to face with the glorified Christ of heaven and keep on shaving. You know, Christians sometimes say silly things. Your people say something like, you know, I've just got to make this decision. I can't decide what the Lord wants me to do. I wish he would just appear and tell me what he wants me. You, you don't want to pray that. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be there in the midst of you. This glorified, majestic Christ is present right here in our midst, right in this moment. And yet, if he were suddenly to make himself visible to us as he did to John, like John, every one of us would be so overwhelmed by his glory that we would not be able to contain it and we would fall at his feet as though dead. 
You must understand, I am not at all suggesting that somehow the Jesus of the Gospels is passe now, the Jesus before this prayer. We will never outgrow the Jesus of the Gospels. Please do not hear me saying that. That Jesus is for us. Peter said, Jesus left us an example that we are to walk in his footsteps. That Jesus is for us, the Jesus of the Gospels. We're to look like him and think like him and talk like him and behave like him. We will never outgrow the Jesus of the Gospels. My only point is that's not the way Jesus is today. You and I live on the other side of this watershed prayer that the Father was able to answer so that the Jesus you know, the Jesus you serve, the Jesus you represent is the glorified Christ of heaven. And what we need in this changing cultural environment of ours to have our whole vision filled, our whole scope just filled with the glory of the one whom we serve. This is the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the one who said, I will stick closer to you than a brother. This is the one who said, lo, I will be with you all the way to the end of the age. That's the Jesus who we serve. And if he is for you, who can be against you? If our whole scope is filled with this picture, this biblical picture of who Jesus really is, this one whom we serve, it changes everything. One of the ways to know that your Jesus is too small is you don't get that. It'll change your worship. You'll never again come tripping casually into a worship service knowing that this is the person you're coming to meet with. How could you treat that casually? It'll transform your obedience. How do you say no to him? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey me. How do you turn to him if you really see him for who he is and say, no, I'm not going to? That's a sure sign you don't get it. It'll transform your courage. That's really what we're talking about here this morning. We live in this changing environment in which it is going to be increasingly difficult to live as a Christian, to identify ourselves with him. We've had the illusion of being comfortable. We're probably the worse off for it. Christians who have no such illusion are going to live more faithfully for him. Jesus said, look, the, the servant is not greater than his master. If they treated me this way, if you identify yourself with me, they're going to treat you that way. Why should we expect it should be any different. The question is, are we willing to stand up and be counted for the one whom we love and serve and who has all of our allegiance? As our own environment heats up and it becomes more and more difficult and more and more costly to make that identification, what do we do? Do we kind of play it down, go along, to get along? Or do we as winsomely and graciously and lovingly as possible nonetheless remain absolutely faithful to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You are going to be tested. Your children are going to be tested. This church will be tested. They're already being tested. A Wheaton College is being tested. We have before the Supreme Court right now, as we speak, a lawsuit trying to protect ourselves from the reach of the federal government telling us that we have to provide abortifacient contraception to our employees or else we are subject to millions of dollars a year of penalties. No exception for us. 
This is working its way through just this week. The HHS, Health and Human Services, has made some concessions because they suspect that the Supreme Court will uphold, uh, just like the Hobby Lobby case, Wheaton College and other schools like us on this. And yet what they're asking us to do still requires the college to be complicit in something that we find immoral. Uh, the larger picture is what is so startling. Wheaton is over 150 years old and for the first time in American history. You have the federal government reaching in and telling us, you Christian organization, unapologetically for Christ in this case, you must do some things that are contrary to your conscience or else you will be punished. It's a different day. And it's not going back. And these things are only going to increase. The question is, how do we keep our balance and continue playing the game when the stands are no longer applauding. Well, the strategies of the Bible will help us. The strategies of other Christians down through church history. The strategies of some of our brothers and sisters who are suffering in the world, right? And we can learn from all of that. But it all starts with knowing who it is that we serve. We serve the Jesus after this prayer. The risen, majestic Christ of heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this insight from your word. We confess that in too many ways our Jesus is truly too small. We only begin to understand the, the majesty of this one whom we call our Lord and Savior. How we thank you, Father, that you sent him into the world for our sakes. How we thank you that he was faithful to that calling and fulfilled it to the uttermost so that you were able to give him back the glory he had with you before the world began. Help us to see him in all his glory. And Father, give us great wisdom and courage to know how as best we can and as winsomely as possible and as graciously and lovingly as possible to live for him faithfully in this generation. We ask you this in his name and for his sake. Amen.